Good morning. If you have your Bibles, and I really, really hope you do, because this is going to be kind of difficult without one, uh, please turn to Nahum chapter 1. Nahum chapter 1. Now, I'll be preaching from verses 2 to 15, but I'll be reading from verses 1 to 15. You'll understand why in a minute. If you do not have a Bible, at the end of your pews, there should be these little black hardback things that are Bibles. Uh, You will be going to page 734. And now, as I read, out of respect for the Word of God, I ask that you all stand. This is the Word of God. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like untangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut you off. The carved image and the metal image, I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vowels, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. 
That is quite a text, don't you think? This is one of the reasons why we as a church read through books of the Bible and preach through books of the Bible. It's because this is a difficult text and for, some, for many of us to hear, but it is actually very, very good news. You see, the reason that we preach is not so that we can merely feel good. That entire worship session that we had before this felt pretty good, didn't it? Did you enjoy it? Not, yeah, okay. Some people possibly, yes, that's, that's good. And it's a good, reassuring thing to sing these great things about the great and mighty God who has overcome everything and in whom we overcome. But brothers and sisters, it's not easy to remember that when after this service, you're going to go home and stuff is going to go wrong. One of the things that's going to go wrong tomorrow is that at way too early, your alarm clock is going to go off on Monday morning and you're not going to be thinking about the glory and majesty and overcoming power of God and his love for you. And my job as I stand here in a pulpit, opening the word of God to you, is to tack down the good feelings that you have about God into the truth of God so that you will know it. So that, not so that you will be trusting me to believe when I say that God is good or the worship team is good, that God is good because the worship team said it or the, the thing you're listening to on uh, Sirius XM tomorrow morning of uh, worship music is, tells you that God is good, but because God is good and you see it in the word of God and you understand that it's true. Many years ago, when I was very young, which is not the case now, I remember an older pastor, an older preacher telling me there are two things that he has learned and that, that are unequivocal. I can actually tell you more things than two things that are true, but he, he could only tell me two. And it, these are actually very useful things. There is a God and you're not him. The second one doesn't usually sound like good news to us, but it is stunningly good news. And it's stunningly good news for the reasons that we see here in Nahum. Let's re recount a little bit, and this is where I'm going to be talking about the first verse. This entire prophecy is concerning Nineveh. Now, in case you missed the last sermon or you haven't done a lot of Bible study in the Old Testament, let me remind you who Nineveh is. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. At the time when Nahum is writing, which is roughly the same time as when you see Jeremiah, which is the book we're reading this month, shameless plug, please be reading through Jeremiah, two, verse, two chapters a day, we'll get you all the way through Jeremiah by the end of this month. But contemporaneous with Jeremiah, Nahum writes these things. That's important because, historically speaking, the time that we're looking at here in Nahum, Judah is in a very bad place. 
They are a overwhelmed, overpowered, captive state. See, before this, the Assyrian Empire had taken over the entirety of the ancient Near East. The Assyrian Empire had marched through the entirety of the northern kingdom of Israel and destroyed it utterly, spreading the people that were there throughout the, throughout the, throughout the Assyrian Empire and dispersing them everywhere. And the armies marched south until they got to Jerusalem. And you can read this story in Kings. They were stopped by the, word, by the Lord himself and forced to return to Nineveh. But that didn't mean that Nineveh was any less powerful. They still were powerful. They still had, uh, they still had things that could defend them. They still had power and might. And to every body around them, they were ultimate power. And they didn't like Judah much because Judah didn't believe in their gods. Judah had actually overcome them once. So Nineveh was not a fan of Judah. The society that they were living in was opposed to them. The place where they were standing looked like a tenuous place. It looked like they were, that Judah was on the decline, that the God that they worshipped was going to fall into obscurity and go away. It looked like they were losing. And worse than that, if you've looked at Jeremiah and read it as kind of a parallel. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet for a reason because he talks about how Judah is going to go into exile for 70 years. That, that, that doesn't sound like a good thing immediately, immediately after hearing that the northern kingdom has been completely destroyed. It sounds like everything is going wrong for Judah. Worse than that, Nineveh has another mention in the Old Testament. I think you, if you look at the minor prophets, there's a minor prophet called Jonah. And do you remember who Jonah was called to? Nineveh. When Jonah came to Nineveh, Nineveh had actually repented. They had turned away from the evil that God had promised to them and had repented. Well, that's in the past now. Nineveh has gone to be evil, as you can see in the text that we see. For all intents and purposes now, it looked like there was an ascendant Assyrian empire and there was a Judah that was going to go away. Now, I will remind you, just for the sake of end points of these things, we are reading a Bible as the Word of God 2,500 to 3,000 years later, and there is still an Israel. You can go there if you want. I think Pastor Steve is going to be leading a trip there later. It's still there, and 
There is Assyria, but there is no Assyrian Empire. Just to let you, just to remind you. So the, the appearances are, can be deceiving. You see, to all appearances, it looked like Judah was on the wrong side of history. You've heard that phrase a bunch of times in modern parlance. People will tell you, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. You don't want to be opposed to the things that are ascendant in your culture. Well, that's what, that's what they're facing. We actually believe similar things to this now. Um, Marxism comes from the basis that society moves inexorably forward into different eras and you can't actually change it and you know the end of the end of reality is going to end in a Marxist revolution that will overthrow the proletariat and whatever because Marxists honestly believe that the, his, the history of the world is going a certain direction and you don't want to stand against history they're not the only ones who think this Hegel would say that society moves through this you know uh, uh, Thesis, antithesis, then a synthesis. And that's the way history works forward. Francis Fukuyama, when he was writing in the 1990s, would say that we are at the end of history. Uh, that didn't work so well. He thought that the history had ended in the 90s and, you know, that was the way it was going to go. Not quite the way things worked. It's, things have changed drastically since then. But ultimately, what Nahum chapter 1 is telling us is something that we need to know, but that doesn't feel like good news for us because so often we find it easier to be on the side of, well, the powerful. We don't like to hear that we're not God, but we're not. And I say that with every bit of love I can muster in my heart. You're not God. We want to be. We want to be the ultimate view of history. We want to be people who live as if the world revolves around us, as if things work for our benefit. We want to have main character energy. That is a very stupid thing to want, to be honest. Because we want to be the main character. Well, I'm going to give you the end of the sermon at the beginning here. You are not the main character, and if you are the main character of your life, your life is a tragedy. That's the way it's going to be. What we see here in Nahum, first and foremost, is the statement that God is ultimately powerful. He is a God of power, he is a God of goodness, and he is a God of surpassing glory. He's not a minor tribal deity. God is not something you tack on to your life. Uh, one of the lies of the secular mood that we're in is that God can be optional. No, we're optional. God is necessary. If 
I stop preaching, if I go away, if I retreat as being the introvert I am, I want to do into my basement and read books for the rest of my life. Everything else keeps going. If God stops upholding the world by the word of his power for even a microsecond, the world stops being. We are, philosophers use this as the term, we are contingent, God is necessary. We live in a universe that denies this though. We imagine that our societies work through history and that we'll overcome the need for God as if the total population of a cosmic speck on a speck on a speck on a speck can overcome the one who spoke reality itself into being. That is why sometimes Nahum chapter 1 can seem like bad news. I mean, it says things like this, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. You know what that means, right? Justice wins. We... I know we don't like saying that because wrath sounds bad and justice sounds horrible. To, that's because we're rich, to be honest. We don't like it because the possibility exists that God actually has recompense for evil, and he does. Opposing God is a very bad idea because he is ultimately just. Opposing the justice of God is a very bad idea because he's a, he is a God. He has great power. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord by no means will clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm and the clouds and the dust of, are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. And we don't, get the, we don't always grasp the value of that because even though we live in St. John's, it's very rare that we actually go out to Cape Spear and see the sheer power of the sea. I mean, in, in Old Testament parlance, referring to the sea is referring to ultimate, unknown, unconquerable power, which, you know, kind of makes sense if, like I said, you go out to Cape Spear on a stormy day. Uh, and why we have warned everybody who comes to Newfoundland, don't go out on those rocks, because one wave and you're out there and you're not coming back ever. And that's, but that power is minor and minuscule compared to God. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. He, this phrase is used, Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers. These are actually places that Judah would have seen as powerful and rich above them. And God is more powerful. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand 
before his indignation? Who can, un who can endure the heat of his anger? Answer, nobody. His wrath is poured out like fire, and the ro rocks are broken into pieces by him. He is powerful, he is transcendently powerful, and he cares about the right winning and the wrong being cast down. Make no mistake, brothers and sisters, God is clear about this. Evil does not win. Period. In case you're wondering, that's a full stop. That means there is nothing to add, nothing, no provisos, no things to add. Evil does not win. Now, that sounds good when we define evil ourselves. When I define, because when I define evil, I define evil as what disagrees with me. That's usually the way we do it. But the Bible is pretty clear about that too, because evil is actually what's opposed to God. I, I had a debate with an atheist friend of mine once, and, and he, he told me about how God is evil. Fair enough. He, he, said, he used the Bible and said God is evil. And, and, and I asked this question, this very simple question that I think most of us should ask. What do you mean by that? Before, you, before we actually report and, and defend God on that point, maybe we should ask what they mean by that. Because biblically speaking, the definition of evil is that which is opposed to God. Well, my friend didn't believe in God, so what the heck is he talking about? I mean, I, I just don't, I really don't get it. My def I understand that evil is that which is opposed to God. You're saying that God is evil, so you have to have another de definition of what good is. What is that? My poor friend was unable to answer. Like so many of us, when we're talking about things that we oppose, when we are trying to oppose God, we end up sitting on the lap of God to try and slap him in his face. It's not a smart idea. He has power and justice. He is powerful over all things, and he cares about doing the right thing. The central argument of Scripture is, by the way, through Jesus Christ, there is no such thing as unpunished evil. All evil is punished either by you, yourself, receiving the wrath of God, or by Jesus Christ taking the wrath of God upon himself on the cross. But all evil is punished. By the way, that means that we actually should be waging war against the deeds of the flesh in our own lives. That means that when we're dealing with evil in our own hearts and minds, we need to be opposed to it. Because that's what it is to be on God's side. But this section of scripture doesn't just talk about the power of God. You may have not caught it while we were going through it. I'm just going to accent it here. Nahum 1.3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. He by no means clears the guilty. Brothers and sisters, 
he doesn't actually give us our recompense immediately. He gives us time to turn away, to repent, to turn to him and trust in him. And why does he do that? Well, Nahum 1.7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows them who take refuge in him. And he reigns. See, one of the most important things we have to recognize about God in our own lives is that he is good and that he's powerful. Your sin can overwhelm you. The evil around you can overwhelm you. If the Lord tarries, every last man and woman in this room will die, including me. Because I'm not more powerful than death and neither are you. I'm not more powerful than the entirety of evil in the world. Heck, I can't even beat the evil in my own life without the power of the Spirit. I'm not more powerful than evil, but he is. I, <laughs> I'm not more powerful than, than sin, but he is. And I'm not more powerful than death, but he is. But the problem is going to be that we as a people, and this is going to be the second half of Nahum chapter 1 that you should be looking at. By the way, just for a, a matter of some structure here, the second, of, uh, of, the second half of Nineveh has two interspersed sections. It's kind of hard to see because prophets don't often talk directly. But if you look at verses 9 to 11, you'll see that Nahum is talking to Nineveh. Then in 12 to 13, he's talking to Judah. Then 14, he talks to Nineveh. And then 15, he talks to Judah again. So it's kind of like, he's, it's like he's talking to a congregation of including all of the people that are people who would hear him. And he says, and you, and you, and you, and you. And he begins by telling the people of Nineveh, you've made an enemy you shouldn't. Nahum, nine, ver, Nahum 1, verses 9 to 11. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. By the way, the word there, trouble, can also be translated as adversary. So the adversary will not rise up a second time. Opposing God is terminal. It's delusional and it's suicidal. It's like trying to imagine that you can go out on the rocks on Cape Spear during a stormy day, get hit by a wave, and just stand there. It's not happening. You're not that powerful. That's a delusion. But even worse, the people of Nineveh tried to stand against God. That's nuts. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord. And he gives you the definition of a counselor who plots evil against the Lord. That's a worthless counselor. If somebody tells you that you should oppose God, they don't know what they're talking about. 
literally. You see, when we recognize that God is God and that he is all-powerful and that he is good beyond all measure, that actually engenders a necessary response in us. Unfortunately, the vast majority of people in our culture, and unfortunately my own heart sometimes, takes the wrong definition. So often we find it easier to oppose God than to, well, oppose our own desires or oppose the desires of the society around us or to go along to get along. I've heard this actually said to me, uh, and, and I apologize if you are somebody who has said this. I have said it myself sometimes, and I was wrong when I did. Well, I'm just going to err on the side of love and ignore what I think the scriptures say. That's not erring on the side of love but that's also kind of nuts. I'm going to basically say that my own understanding of the universe is better than God's understanding of the universe. And, and, and I'll admit, you know, people say I'm a pretty smart dude. I got lots of letters at the end of my name. I'm nothing compared to God. Like, If you disagree with God, you're wrong. I I would love to be able to say that, you know, you might have a point or you you can possibly argue with God. You can't argue with God and be correct because he defines reality. Like, God's opinion has a different name among humans, it's called truth. If you disagree then with God's opinion, you disagree with the truth, and which means you're wrong. Yet so often and so easily people will side with other things, and that's because we so easily see the things that are immediately in front of us instead of the things that are around us. We so easily see the society and the culture and the things that of the world, it's easy to see that because it's right in front of us. But when we look in, in the light of the transcendent reality of God, the culture looks pretty tiny by comparison. If we even look at history, we should recognize that it doesn't work that way. Our, our little segment of history is like a tiny blip on the screen Our culture and the way we believe things is kind of minor, historically speaking and globally speaking, and very much smaller than God. Even more the case in your own life. We'll even use strange words like this. God wouldn't want me to be an unhappy person, which is true. God does not want you to be unhappy. He wants you to be eternally happy in him. That's true. But I hear it said that God wouldn't want me unhappy when, he, when I'm saying he, he wants me to cheat on my wife. Like, I, I've heard guys say this, you know, I'm cheating on my wife because God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. 
And yet, I remember saying this when we do the, do the wedding services, let not what God has get, put together, let man, not man separate. So God's put together your marriage and you're going to say, oh, well, you know, cheating on my wife is an okay thing because God wants me to be happy. Uh, yeah, he wants you to be happy, but that's not going to make you happy because that's opposed to the truth. That's opposed to God. And God will be vindicated. People will say this in secular terms. Reality has a, <laughs> does horrible things to people who won't believe it. Reality has a way of dealing with you if you are going to disagree with reality. It won't be good for you. And well, God defines reality. But then look at the passages that Nahum says to the people of Judah. Verse 12 and 13. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. Again, reality does horrible things to those who won't listen to it. But reality vindicates those who trust it. And ultimately speaking, reality is found in God. Get the situation too. The, the people of Judah are sitting here and they have the Assyrian Empire to the north and they're imagining that the Assyrian Empire is going to keep getting bigger and larger and overwhelm them and destroy them and they will be gone forever. And even, they even know that they haven't been very righteous and that Jeremiah is saying that there are all sorts of bad things are going to happen to them. But God says clearly, I know who has, takes refuge in me. And though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and passed away. By the way, it isn't Assyria that overcomes Judah, it's the Babylonian Empire, which overcomes the entire Assyrian Empire. Assyria actually never walks into Jerusalem. It doesn't happen. In fact, it still hasn't happened thousands of years later. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from you and I will burst their bonds apart. Behold, upon verse 15, behold upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. You see, God vindicates his glory. And this is very good news for those who trust in him and very bad news for those who oppose him. That's what Nahum is telling us. So then the central question we have to ask ourselves and the society around us and us as a church, who are we trusting? And before we answer too quickly, this can be a difficult answer, a difficult thing to think about because, uh, I mean, as Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things who can understand it. We can convince ourselves to be that we're following God when we're not. 
And I mean, this is why the, in the New Testament, Paul is going to tell us that we need to test and make sure that we are in the, in the truth. Because it's easy for us to convince ourselves that we're following God when we're not. And it's really, really, really important that we put our faith in God. He is faithful and just to forgive those who trust in him. But brothers and sisters, if you'll stay opposed to God, it won't go well for you. Because he's a vindicating God. He vindicates the truth. He brings reality to bear. We can't stand with injustice. We can't stand with lies. As I said earlier, if you have main character energy, if you are the main character in your story, you live in a tragedy. You will die. And you will be forgotten. But if you accept being a supporting character of God, if you understand that you are created in his image to worship him and to bring joy and, and glory to him, well, you're in an epic. And you're a redemption story in an epic. And that story will last for all eternity. You see, the flesh, the world, and the devil is busy convincing us that God doesn't win. It's busy convincing us that we need to follow through with our own desires. We need to follow through with the, with the world's desires. We need to follow through with Satan's desires. It's the weirdest thing. I saw this week that they actually had a satanic conference in the U.S. And it was interesting because they, just, they were actually just believing all the things that our culture tends to try to ram down our throat. And it can look like they're going to win. It really can. I don't know how many Christians I've talked to who tell me that it's going to be very hard for Christians in the future in Canada. They might be right. Let's be honest. That it's going to be very hard for Christians to follow through with all of the things that are happening. They might be right for a time. But I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, but I'll tell you what a prophet did say. Behold, on the mountains the feet of him who bring good news and who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He's utterly cut off. It's so easy for us to trust in our own, uh, in our own ability. And yet, as Romans 7, 21 to 24 would say, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? If we are trusting in human progress or legal strength or anything else above God, well, that's the situation we're in. We're, and we're betting against reality itself and the very author of history. But there is an answer to the question, who will deliver me from this body of death? Romans 7.25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my mind I serve the law 
of sin. Brothers and sisters, today, there is a simple thing placed before us. Are we going to trust ourselves and the culture and the society around us to work things out properly, even though they've never done it before? Or are we going to trust the God who rules and reigns over all things? The one who brings all things to pass, for whom everything has been made, at whose name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Nahum chapter 1 is good news, but it is not good news to evil. So we need to stand against evil in our own lives, in our own hearts, and trust in, put our refuge in Christ. It's interesting to note that the difference between the people who are accepted and who aren't isn't that one group is more righteous than the other. It's that one group trusts in God and the other does not. So brothers and sisters, today, let's be a people who put our trust in God. And we already have the promise in Jesus Christ. We know that this will work out because it already has. We know that he has already won. As the song just said. As we turn now to the uh, to communion and I'm guessing Pastor Steve will come forward. Let's be a people who trust not in our own righteousness but in the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ for he has provided the way to be redeemed.